I would like for you to remember, if you will, back in Revelation chapter 1, um, the Apostle John tells us the purpose for writing this revelation. And there's two main things I want you to remember. One thing that he said is that Jesus gave him this revelation because Jesus wanted to show His servants the things that must take place soon. So in other words, Jesus said, no man knows the hour, no man knows the day, but but still the revelation is these things are going to take place soon. And whether that soon to you is like uh, 10 years or soon to you is 3,000 years. The fact of the matter is... um, I can't remember what did Peter say about um, God's understanding of time. A thousand years is like one day. And so these things must take place soon. And so he wanted them to understand that these things you're fixing to read about are, are coming and they're going to take place soon. And then he also said that there is a blessing in reading the book. In uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, I believe it is. He said there is a, a great blessing in reading this book. And so basically... In Revelation chapter 1, we get the purpose of it, of why He's given it to us. And then at the end of Revelation chapter 1, He shows us the revelation that He got. Namely, He saw the Lord Jesus Christ in His glorified form. Does anybody remember what Jesus was currently doing? He was what? He was in the churches. And what was He doing in the churches? Inspecting them. That's right, he was inspecting the churches. And so we see that in Revelation chapter 1. Well, when we get to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you get the results of the inspection. And then he tells you, this is what I saw in this church, this is what I saw in this church, so on and so on. And again, the hopes is that they will hear it, they will they will believe it, they'll understand it, they'll repent, they'll change, or they'll be uh, encouraged, either one. The, so Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are about... Um, what, these are the results of the inspection. Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 10, I believe it is, or maybe 11. Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 11, it dwells on the activity of God during the seven years of tribulation. All right, This is what God is going to do once the judgment starts and once He begins to reclaim the creation to, to His Son's authority. And He begins to triumph over all evil. And so you see the activity of God in this. Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13, you see the activity of Satan in this time. You see His Antichrist, His false prophet, His one world government, His one world religion. And so at the end of... Um, Chapter 6, you remember when he's poured out, all the seals have been opened and his judgment has been poured out. You remember he took a break in chapter 7 in his activity because there was a question that was asked. You remember what that question was? Who can stand? In other words, when he would get to the end of, of just great tragedy, when, he, when you would look at all of the judgments being poured out, the question was asked, who can stand? And you remember, who did He tell us in chapter 7 is going to be able to stand through all this tribulation? Huh? God's people, and specifically who of God's people? That's right. The 144,000 who are the tribes of Israel, and we will get into that here in just a minute as well. Here's, Here's what I'm trying to paint the picture for you. Now, when we get to the end of chapter 12 and 13, we've also seen that the Antichrist has, has brought hell to earth, has he not? He, he, has, he has went to war with the saints. And so it is very likely that what God is doing in this revelation in chapter 14 is He's answering and He's taking a break and He's showing John a vision the same way He did in chapter 7. He showed him a vision of who can stand through all this and how God is going to make them stand. He shows him a vision of the ministry that takes place on earth. And then he shows him a vision of of heaven and, and, and the rejoicing that's going on in heaven as the result of that ministry. Well, here in chapter 14, we're going to see some more visions that God gives John that I believe actually opens a light to John to see that 
even through all that you've seen the Antichrist do, and even after all that you've just seen in chapter 12 and 13, there are still going to be people that are going to be able to stand through this. They're going to make it through. And so he gives him a vision again. Notice what he says in verse 1 of chapter 14. He says, Then I looked, and behold... In other words, he's still seeing a vision here, right? It, this is this is not necessarily something that everything in it we have to translate or we have to interpret literally, even though we do believe that unless it states otherwise, we are to interpret it lit- literally, correct? So what we see here is that he looked and he sees this vision and he says, and behold. What does he mean when he says, and behold? He, he's amazed at what he sees, all right? And so... Why would he be amazed at this? Well, again, because he saw the 144,000 back in chapter 7, right? He knew that they were going to be marked. He knew that God said they were going to be protected. But now, after it all, and even after the Antichrist and his false prophet, he looks and behold, guess what? They are still there. They made it. They have conquered. They have triumphed. And so he moves from the judgment or from the, uh, um, from the curse, if you will, of the Antichrist and the false prophet and all the hell that they, that they wreak on earth. And then he moves into the fact that God's people triumphed. The ones that God said he sealed and they were going to make it, they made it. And he looks and, and behold on Mount Zion. And the reason that's important is because it fulfills scripture. Uh, look with me if, if you would, just hold your place here. Go to Psalm 132. We'll look at several Scriptures tonight. The reason I want to do this is because we always use Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? And if we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, then we likely have came up with the right interpretation. And so in Psalm 132, look at verse 13 through 18. And actually, we can just look at verse 13 and 14 for the point that I'm trying to make. But it says, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for here I have desired it. And so the point that I'm making is that God has always told His people that Mount Zion is going to be His dwelling place. That's that's His. That's His place, All right. Look at uh, Psalm 74, verse 2. I know we're going backwards, but I wrote them backwards for some reason. Psalm 74, verse 2. He says, Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt, and direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. So again, the psalmist and all the people of old recognized that Mount Zion was the place where God said, this is where I dwell, this is my home. Heaven is actually called the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Mount Zion. Look at uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. He says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So again, All I'm trying to get at tonight is that whenever you're seeing this vision here, basically what you're seeing here is God has reclaimed His dwelling place, His home. And now the Lamb, the King, the one that He set on His holy hill, His Mount Zion, He has returned, He has set His feet down on the dwelling place of God, and now with Him, out of the tribulation stands the 144,000 Jews that had His name. Remember in chapter 7 it told us that God sealed them, right? He sealed them on their heads. 
And we didn't know what that was until here, but now we know. The seal was simply the name of Jesus Christ and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And so there are, there are some who believe that this 144,000 is supposed to be interpreted um, uh, metaphorically, that it's not, it's not supposed to be taken literally. There are some who believe this 144,000 actually represents the fullness of the church. So in other words, it's a number that just represents everybody that's ever been saved of God from the old to the new, from beginning to the end. There are some who believe that. I don't believe you have to do that because I believe that chapter 7 actually tells us this. And if you'll look with me at chapter 7 real quick of Revelation... We see these guys again. And notice what he says here in verse uh, 3 of chapter 7. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their four. And he's specifically talking about during this time of tribulation, right? So he's not talking about from beginning to end or to or all the people that have ever been saved. These are people in the tribulation. And then he says here, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he goes down through here and he names 12,000 from each individual tribe. And so I believe that we don't have to interpret this metaphorically. We can take this number Literally, even though it's a vision, even though it's not necessarily something that's actually happening when he sees it, he still knows that this is a literal 144,000 people. And you remember that Paul told us in Romans chapter 11, again, I told you we're going to go to a lot of Scriptures tonight, but follow me there to Romans chapter 11. We'll look at verse 1 through 10 first. So I want you to see... Why? Where these hundred and forty-four thousand come from? So in Romans chapter eleven, verse one, Paul says, "I ask then, has God rejected His people? Why did He ask that? Because there wasn't many Israelites that were coming to the Lord, was it?" He said, I don't understand this. We're preaching our heart out to the Jews and they are rejecting Him, rejecting Him, rejecting Him. They won't come. A few of them are, but... And so Paul says, I don't... I don't. You know, is has God rejected His people? He says, no, that's not what's happened. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel. And this is, what, this is what he said. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But do you remember what God's reply was to him? God said, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were what? Hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Here's the point before we move on further down. Paul is basically saying that God told us way back in the Old Testament that when the Son comes, they're not going to receive Him. They're going to reject Him. God's going to give them a spirit of stupor. He is going to allow their eyes to be blinded and their hearts to be hardened so that so that they are mostly, for the most part, going to reject Him until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now go, go down with me to um, verses 25 in the same chapter, Romans 11. Just for sake of time, we'll skip this. Verse 25, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved. And he's talking about Israel here. For the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So let me tie this all up in a pretty little bow for you. Remember Elijah? He's up on the mountain and he has this great victory, but, but um, Jezebel has had all the prophets of God slaughtered and all Israel has basically turned to worship Baal. Elijah takes off running and he says, God, I alone am left. There's nobody left that, that, that other than me. So just go on and take me. I'm ready to go. And God looks at him and he says, Elijah, there's 7,000 people in Israel that you know nothing about that I have reserved for myself. They have not bowed the knee to Baal. They worship and they serve me. I have reserved them. I have chosen them. I have picked them. And in the same way Paul relates this to say, even too at the present time, there is a remnant of Israel that God has chosen that He is going to pick out, that He is going to save, even though the majority of the rest of them are going to have blinded eyes and hardened hearts and they're not going to see and accept the Lord Jesus Christ, there is going to be a remnant that I am going to choose and I am going to, to save and I am going to deliver. And what you're looking at here in this 144,000 are the remnant of Israel that God has picked out, 12,000 from each tribe that He has picked out to, to, that have not bailed, that have not bowed the knee to the Antichrist or to the world or to any other God, only to God alone. And you're going to see that as we study who this 144,000 are here in just a minute. But these are the ones that are going to be protected by God, they're going to be sealed by God, and they are going to make it through the entire tribulation. Not a single one. When you get to the end of this, he does not say he saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with 135,000. Does he? He says he saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him are the 144,000 that God picked out at the beginning of this thing and sealed. And they have ministered to Him, they have followed Him, and they have made it through, and they have come out victors on the other side. And so what you're seeing in this first vision is victory in the midst of tribulation. And notice what we see next in verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven. Now it is a single voice is what he hears, but keep, keep reading. It was like the roar of many waters. It was like the sound of loud thunder. And then it says, The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now that's interesting because when you go back to Revelation chapter 5 and you study the worship service that was going on in heaven, what you saw was that the elders that were around the throne were all playing harps in their hands. And when you read Revelation chapter 5, this worship service around the throne starts out with these living creatures, four living creatures that are around the throne. Then the elders come together and join in. And then the angel, a myriad of angels come together, thousands upon thousands upon thousands and thousands of angels come together, and they all begin to lift up praise to God together. And so I believe what you're seeing here is that from heaven, you hear what sounds like one voice. But in that voice, what he hears is all of heaven in unison singing together praises to the Lamb and praises to God for the victory that He has accomplished through this 144,000. And so we see that, I believe, whenever we're going through this. But keep reading with me in verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. So you see why I think that that's what's happening here? Because you go back to chapter 5 and let Scripture interpret Scripture, and basically what you're seeing is that the heavens have opened up. 
The Lamb is on Mount Zion with the 144,000. The heavens have opened up and now the 144,000 are able to join them in the worship of around the throne. And so you have one voice happening right here. And then it says here that no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And so here you see that no one else could learn this. And I think maybe, I can't, I'm not going to try to be, say that I'm just sure about this. But I think that maybe what's happening right here is that these are the Jews that we read about in Isaiah 53. You remember in Isaiah 53 whenever they said, who believed our report? He, he grew up among us like a, like a shoot out of the ground and he had no um, image or, or desireliness that, that we should want Him in any way. And so what you're seeing in Isaiah 53, it's actually called a servant song is what it's called. And it was a song that was being sung. And so I think possibly what you're seeing here is the 144,000 Jews now because they've had their eyes open to who the Lamb is. And remember, the rest of the Israelite people, they didn't. They rejected Him. The stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And so I believe when you go back and read Isaiah chapter 53, you can understand why nobody else could sing this song. Nobody else could learn it except for these 144,000 because nobody else had experienced the Lamb in the way that these 144,000 had experienced Him. And so again, that's just my own personal thought. Right? Right? That's right. Right. That's right. And I think you're saying exactly what I'm saying is that because of the way they had experienced the Lamb, they had experienced... Go with me to Isaiah 53 just a minute. So, and you'll see it for yourself. You'll see that this is Jews that are singing this. And I really believe that this is a prophecy of the Jews that had their eyes opened to who Jesus really is. They didn't see Him at first. They didn't believe it at first. But God chose these out of all of Israel to be His remnant that, that would not bow the knee to anyone but Him. And notice what Isaiah 53... Let's just start at verse 1. and we'll, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in it, but I want you to be able to see it anyway. Notice in verse 1 it says, Who has believed what He heard from us? And what was the answer to that? Who, among the Jews, who had believed it? <laughs> and then notice what he says next. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To Jews. That was where Jesus went to, right? That's where He did His ministry at. Alright, and then look what he says in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we, that we, notice the we there. Here's Jews. That we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. They're given reasons why the Jewish people didn't believe it, right? He was, he was despised. <laughs> he was rejected by men. In other words, if He had been the Messiah, shouldn't He have been accepted? Shouldn't He not have been a despised but worshipped? And then He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. It didn't make sense to them. But then it says, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You see that? Now keep going. Surely he has borne our griefs. Our. You see what the, this is Jewish people here looking at him saying, we didn't understand who he was. We didn't accept him at first, but surely now we understand. He bore our griefs. And then not only that, He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, but, He was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered it? What's the answer to that? None of them. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't think about it. They didn't think that He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of My people. And they made, a, made His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in His death. Literally, they, they made His death between two thieves and they buried Him in a rich man's borrowed tomb. Although He had done no violence and there was no deceit in His mouth, yet it, it, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. And so anyway... The, the, again, the point is that I believe that this is their personal testimony. That they have seen the Lord Jesus in a way that, that nobody else has. And now they're able... And I'm not saying this is the song that they're singing, but I believe that this is an example of the fact that, that they have experienced in redemption in a way that, that not many in the world ever have. And so I believe that's what it means when it says no one can learn it except the 144,000. But we know that all the ones in heaven were singing it with them. So, and then in verse 4, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever they go. And then these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So basically, here's what you got here. You got 144,000 people that are undefiled by sexual immorality. All right? Now, specifically because of the fact that they've remained pure. All right? But he's not saying that it would have been wrong for them to marry, but what you have here are people, and we'll look at Scripture to prove it here in a minute, people that were like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who who was not married, who dedicated himself solely to the Lord. And then we'll see also that these are people that were wholly dedicated to serving the Lord and they were blameless. Now I'm not going to tell you that they were sinless, but they were blameless in the way that Paul understood an Israelite to be blameless. And again, let's look at some Scriptures to see that. First off, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And while you're turning there, do you remember what kind of impact just one Apostle Paul had on the world? Just one? By himself? <laughs> Imagine 144,000. Well, we'll get there in a minute. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we will look at verse 6 through 9 first. And he's talking about marriage here, and he's talking, he's been talking about sexual immorality and how it's important that we flee from it. And you can find that back up at the end of chapter six. But chapter seven, verse six, look what it says. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single. What's the next three words? <laughs> These are where I'd argue with people who want to tell me the Apostle Paul was married and that he did. The Apostle Paul remained single for a purpose and a reason. All right. He says it right there. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. He's not saying that I'm a widow. But anyway, in verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So notice what Paul is saying here. He's advising that if a Christian can do it, and if he has the gift from God to be able to do it, he should remain single. Why? And you're going to see here in a minute why he says this, but mainly because he can be completely dedicated to the Lord. 
But not everybody has that gift and He acknowledges that, right? And He acknowledges that that's a gift from the Lord. Notice what He said again in verse 7, I think it was. Um, But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another. So not everybody has this gift. I don't have this gift, All right. Probably many of y'all don't have this gift. And it's okay. He's not saying this is a command from the Lord. All right, It's okay. The marriage bed is, a, is an honorable thing. But skip down with me now to verse um, 32 through 35 of the same chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. He's been talking about the same thing. And notice how he sums it up. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. That's a good thing to be anxious about, right? But notice what he says in verse 33. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. Now, is that in and of itself necessarily a bad thing? No. Because we are supposed to be protectors and providers for our family. But what he's saying at is that the one that remains single is able to just put his cares on the things of the Lord. Whereas the married man, and I'm not going to say unfortunately, but the married man has a responsibility to take care of his family, right? There you go. That's right. That's right. And so verse 34 says, "...and his interests are divided." And the unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion. Did y'all notice that? To secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So... Again, here's, here's the point that I'm seeing whenever we go back over to Revelation chapter 14, these 144,000. God had given them a gift to be solely dedicated to Him. They were completely undefiled by any sexual immorality whatsoever, which was a very serious offense in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And so they had kept themselves as virgins and their interest was not divided, but instead they had one focus for life. And what was that? To please God. All right, now let's go with me to um, Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to look at another thing the Apostle Paul said about uh, himself being a Hebrew this time. Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. Actually, we will start in verse uh, 4. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. He says here, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now here he's talking about not the spiritual things, but the fleshly things, right? And so as far as being an Israelite, Paul's got some confidence. He's got some things to boast about. Let's see what they are. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That was according to the law, right? So basically what he's going to say here is, I have kept the law. He's not trying to say he's sinless, but he's saying as far as zeal for the Lord and as far as following God, I I was on it. Notice what he says next. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, what's that next word say? Blameless. So here's the point that he was trying to make. As far as following God, he's not saying he's sinless, right? Because he goes on a little bit later and he says, I'm not saying that I'm already perfected or I've already attained it. But 
He is saying that as far as zeal for God, as far as His desire to just be true to God, following the law, He did everything to the T. He did everything the way that He was supposed to. Now go back over with me to Revelation chapter 14. Let's read about these guys again in verse 4. And I think you'll see the, the best understanding of, of what, what it's saying about these people. In verse 4 it says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. Now again, we know that it's not, you don't defile yourself by marrying, do you? No. Matter of fact, the Bible said at the very beginning, it is not good for man to be alone. So we will make him a helpmate. So that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is that they were wholly dedicated to the Lord because they remained unmarried, because their interests were not divided. They were solely devoted. You're going to see it in the next verse that he, he, he explains this to you. He says, it is these who do what? Wherever he goes, their eyes are set on one thing. I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what. In the end, he says, these have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. And so the first fruits, what you have to understand is that in Leviticus, I think, I think it was chapter 23, somewhere around there, what they would do was they would plant a few seeds before they would plant their crops in stages. And so whenever the first stage came up, they would take the first fruits from it they would come and wrap it in a sheath and the priest would present it before the Lord. And ultimately, it was for it to be blessed so that the, so that the fruits that came up in the stages after that, that they would be blessed and they would continue to come up and be accepted by the Lord and He would bless the, the, the crop. And again, you, I think that's Leviticus 23 or 12, somewhere in there. You'd have to look and find it. But, um, what, what I believe you're seeing here is he's saying that the 144,000 are the first fruits of a multitude that is going to come from their ministry. They are the first fruits of God redeemed out of this tribulation. And in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. And again, I think that what this is talking about is the same kind of blameless that Paul was referring to. Not that they're not human. Not that they're gods in some way, as the Mormons see these as, as these super uh, that these are they have now become gods basically, and so um, that's not what you're seeing here. You're seeing 144,000 that God has redeemed. They are the remnant that that, that we have been looking for. And let me show you some scriptures to to back that up because uh, I think you're seeing scripture fulfilled here. But look with me at um, Psalm chapter 24. Let's look at that one. Because remember, remember the vision that we're seeing here. The Lamb and the 144,000 are standing on Mount Zion, right? So the King and His, and his 144,000 are standing on, on, on Mount Zion, alright? Now let's see what we see here. We can start in verse, um, verse 1. It says, "...the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof." the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift, up, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now look with me if you would at Joel chapter 2. Joel comes right before Amos and Obadiah. Joel comes, Joel comes right after Hosea. 
Joel chapter 2 is a prophecy about the day of the Lord, about this day that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 14. So you're seeing this fulfilled right here. Joel chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 30. Give you just a minute to get there. It's a little bit more difficult book to find. Joel chapter 2 verse 30 through verse 32. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So again, I believe what you're seeing take place in Revelation chapter 14 is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. It is also a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. You can go to Psalm chapter 2 and see it there. Uh, there are several places that it is fulfilled. It's also a fulfillment. Y'all go to Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Y'all going to get you. Y'all going to get you. Yeah. <laughs> Zephaniah is right before Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So it's what would that be? Four books before the end of the Old Testament. So Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah, not Zechariah. Actually, let's start in verse 12. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 12. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And again, what you're seeing there is an image of the, the people low and humbly that God chooses as the remnant out of uh, I believe some of your versions, if you have the, the King James or the New American Standard, it actually says in that, I think, the remnant instead of the ones that are left. Um, does somebody have a King James or a... Um, yeah, verse 13. It, that's what it says, the remnant. That's right. And the remnant. So again, what we're looking at here is we're looking at this chosen group that God has been predicting for ages that I'm going to draw out of Israel and they're, and they're, He's going to gift them to be able to just be wholly dedicated to Him. And so that's what we see in, in, in this right here is that we see the, the victory of, of the Lamb, the victory of God in, in protecting those that, that He marks and that He sends out to minister for Him during this time. And so that's the first vision that we have. Now, I don't think i got time to get into the next one, so I, I'm going to end it right here. I know it's a little early, but um, next week we get into another vision. Notice in verse 6, notice what he says next. Then I saw another angel. Now remember, he's been watching these angels blow the trumpets, right? First angel came out, blew the trumpet, this happened. Second angel came out, blew the trumpet. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Six angels have come out. Well, now he sees another angel. And he sees a vision of, of a gospel being proclaimed. And so we're going to, we're going to get into the second vision next week. And basically what we're going to see is that there is going to be ministry that is going to be taking place during these seven years of tribulation. This whole time that the Antichrist is making war on the Jews and on the, the, the church of God, 
the whole time that, that, that many are being martyred for their faith, there is still a lot of ministry going on during this time. And there are still a lot of people being saved. And so we're going to be able to, to, to see a little bit of that next week and a little bit about the ministry that God is doing during this time. Because remember, I would imagine that just like in chapter 7, he asked, who can stand? That same thing that he's asking after he sees what the Antichrist and the false, false prophet is doing is, who's going to make it through this? And then God shows him a vision. There's a lamb and there's 144,000 that I told you is going to make it. And there they are. And then this is a little bit about them. And then next week we get into the ministry that God has going on at the time that the Antichrist and his false prophet are trying to deceive the world. He's got ministry going on during that time. That's exactly right. They have, from start to finish, more than likely, they have ministered throughout the entire world. And like I said, you think about what one Apostle Paul did. Matter of fact, the Ephesians tried to, um, tried to kill him because they said, quote, he has turned the world upside down. <laughs> And so, basically, if you can imagine one man that was dedicated to the Lord the way that these 144,000 are going to be, 144,000 of them that are going throughout the world and ministering during this great time of tribulation, um, the work of God is going to be extreme through this time, and the work, ex work of Satan is also going to be extreme through this time. All right, any questions? Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And that's the reason I said, yes, there are a lot of things in Revelation that you have to interpret symbolically. That a lot of things. But there are specific things that I think you can look at and understand that this is not symbolic. This is literal. This is literal. And we, and again, when you use scripture to interpret scripture, it makes sense. You go back and you see the prophecies. There it is. You go back and you see where Paul taught on it. There it is. You go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and read about the coming day of the Lord and you see a picture of Revelation 14 in that as well. So, um, I mean, when you use Scripture to interpret Scripture, you can come away, even though apocalyptic literature can be difficult to interpret, I believe we can come away with at least some assurance to say, I feel like that we have interpreted that correctly. You know? They ain't been touched. Yeah. You know, you think about it. They're just like Daniel when he went into the lion's den. The mouths were shut. They're just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that went into the fiery furnace and they didn't even smell like smoke when they came out. Um, they're just like David uh, facing Goliath. They're just like... Uh, so, you know, this is just God's chosen ones that He has called out for His specific purpose and He has already declared no, nothing is allowed to touch them. And they come out on the other side with the Lamb victorious. Victorious. Amen. Any other questions? Amen. So what do we take from this before I leave? What do we do with it? He said, I want to show my servants the things that must take place soon. Be ready. All right. All right. Do what? Yeah. All right. That's right. He can. That's right. Anybody else? Trust the plan. I like it. I like it. Trust the plan. It's going to be some hard times, but God is going to come out victorious, ain't He? The Antichrist and the false prophet are literally going to turn this world upside down. <clears throat> but God is going to be victorious.
That's right. That's right. Satan, we, we see at the end, was nothing more than a puppet. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Amen. Any other questions or comments before we close? All right. Thank you all for, for your time and your attention. And uh, Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We got Chad. Brother Chad Adams' benefit is coming up this Saturday. So if you have not got tickets, have not been able to support that, now is your time. Don't wait because if you probably don't get them tonight, you're probably not going to. So um, tonight is your chance to support that. I know they'd be greatly appreciated. But you can get tickets. Yeah, you can get tickets at the door, right? Yeah, but don't wait for that because something may not... You know how it is. All right. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we come to You tonight and we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You that, um, Lord, even though we know that um, You will be victorious, Father, we, we thank You, God, that You show us the things that are going to take place. Father, and I thank You that because You show us both the, the horrors that are coming and yet You are victorious on the end of it, Lord, I thank You, God, that we can look at it and not face it with fear, but we can look at it and know that, Father, as long as we keep our eyes on You, as long as we... We, we keep our faith in You, Father. We will endure to the end, and we too will be victorious with You. So, Father, I just thank You tonight, Lord, that um, you've, you've showed us the things that are going to take place. God, I pray that we're already with You. I pray we're part of that one voice in heaven that's, uh, that's praising Your name before this comes. But, but Lord, no matter what, Father, if, um, if, if we're still here or if we're not, if we're raptured out, Father, whatever it is that You decide to do, Lord, I just pray, God, that... Um, Lord, that You would just help us to stay strong in our faith. Father, that You would just um, bless us to, uh, to keep our eyes focused on You. Father, I thank You for this congregation and I thank You for their heart to come together tonight to study Your Word. Lord, I just pray, God, that we would never think that it's wasted time. Father, that any time we, we learn about You, any time that we hear from You, Father, that, um, Lord, it's always a blessing for us. So, Father, we love You. We praise You. Lord, we thank You for everything You do for us and we ask You for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.